Hello and welcome back to the Total Football Analysis Podcast. Last week with Bryant and Kyle, we went through the different methods of breaking down games of football, as well as the role of analysis in football, among a whole host of other topics surrounding analysing games. The episode went down incredibly well with you and you've clearly enjoyed the episode, so why not do a follow-up episode? This time, Lee Scott will be coming on to impart his wisdom on how to scout a player and how to become a professional scout. Lee has a lot of skin in the game and has worked professionally in football on the recruitment side for a number of years now, with clubs such as his boyhood Aberdeen and now Velez Club de Football, where he is the chief scout. Lee has a keen eye for talent and can probably tell you every single under-21 player from all four corners of the globe. So I'm delighted to have him back in the podcast today to learn about how he scouts players and to give us all some tips and tricks to become better scouts. I'm your host, Adam Scully. And I hope you all enjoy the following episode. Before we begin, though, please make sure to rate the podcast five stars if you would be so kind. It's greatly appreciated and it helps us to grow the podcast and to get more and more excellent guests on and to get more and more ears on the podcast, too. So now, without further ado, let's go speak to Lee. Lee, welcome back on the podcast. How have you been? Yeah, I've been good. Thanks, Adam. How are you? I'm, I'm very good. I'm really good watching a lot of football recently and, and obviously the magazine is out again at the, the start of next month so this is the period where we all do our magazine pieces and I'm doing a piece on Suterol I think it's pronounced in Serie B and they're very um, I hope people read the article obviously but if it, I wouldn't recommend watching them if you don't like a team that get about 30% possession per game 2.8 passes per possession like it's very very uh, 1980s. Well, it's good, though. I, I think it's quite refreshing. Um, what's this period like for you in terms of working at a in, with a club? Like, how does the how does the transfer window work around this time? Because I know it fluctuates from kind of league to league, country to country. And uh, is this like a busy period for you, or is it quite a mellow time? Or? Uh, it, it's busy. It's definitely busy. Obviously, January is a bit different. January windows. I mean, before I worked for clubs. Mm-hmm. I used to be. I used to watch all the business in January and just couldn't understand why these clubs were so disorganised that they were trying to do all this business in January. And I always thought that when I worked for a club, I wouldn't be pulled into that. But the reality is that it's so extremely difficult not to be, because you have to be. You can't simply say that scouting. You have to be proactive in terms of having your lists and having your work done and having. Mm-hmm everything in place you also have to be reactive because you don't know which deals are suddenly going to become available um so for example when i was with still working with aberdeen we we signed bojan Majowski, the north macedonian international strikers doing quite well really well yeah yeah and um initially when we were interested in him we were watching for a long time and initially we were told it would be two and a half to three million mm-hmm. um there was interest from i think seria and the Bundesliga at the time. So at that point, obviously, we're like, nah, that deal's done. We're, we're not going to get anywhere close to that. Um, but then when the summer rolled around again, or it was close to becoming summer, suddenly the player's available, and the player's available at a much more reasonable price. So you always have to be willing to work in a reactive manner, which I think is important. And the same thing's true at the moment, because we could sign players without contract. So at the moment, we are still getting players pushed towards us who are out of contract, mm-hmm. um, who are still looking for a club. We we would potentially add one more to our squad just because of injuries and things like that, even though there's only 11 games left in our season. So 
you're still doing that and at the same time I'm also still new from a scouting perspective into the club I only took the post in November and then obviously we transitioned straight into the winter transfer window so the plan ideally we'd already be looking at the transfer window for not this summer but next summer but because I wasn't in place to get the groundwork done in the first instance we're working quite hard at the moment to get everything ready for this coming summer and then hopefully we'll keep working at the same pace and then we'll get ahead of ourselves if you like. And I suppose as well it's while the club's doing a lot of business say in January might seem disorganised but it's also I suppose well you'd know better than I would of course but like if you're struggling throughout the season, then your plans kind of would. Well, I'll actually ask you: Would your plans change them by January? And as well, if like a new manager comes in, and then they have a whole different kind of idea of what they want. I mean, you look at Chelsea, for instance, with Thomas Tuchel, who spent two hundred odd million in the summer, and then Graham Potter comes in, he gets all the money in January. Then when things change, yeah, it's very difficult. I mean, I've been in situations where managers have changed before, and you. Everything that you've done can be thrown out the window. Mm. But I've also been in situations where we've had a manager who was very firm on what they wanted to do in terms of the playing system. So the players were recruited based on that playing system, only for the manager to change his mind a couple of months after the transfer window. And all of a sudden, having recruited players, we recruited wingers, for example, and all of a sudden he wants to play three at the back with wingbacks and no wingers and suddenly you're in a completely different situation. Um, we're really lucky at Vélez at the moment because we're not a, a club who's run in terms of recruitment by the manager. The, the head coach or the manager obviously has a voice within the recruitment process, but everything is dictated, not dictated, that's the wrong word. Everything is set around that. So director of football, Magnus Persson, um, and the club chairman, Jesper, they had a very clear idea of what they wanted in terms of club identity and club DNA, and that's what we recruit to. So we did change coach since I've been in post. Um, we now have Michael Jolly. I was going to say, that's a very impressive appointment when yeah. I saw it. Michael Jolly, yeah, he, was League Two with Barrow, I believe. That's right. He was no Grimsby. Grimsby, sorry, yes. Grimsby, I think. Um, he, we were waiting a little while for his paperwork to come through during January and eventually it got mm-hmm. put in place. But when, I mean, the good thing is when, when we do lose a manager the way that we did, Magnus is able to step in and he's got quite the pedigree as a coach. He was Estonian national team coach. He coached top level teams in Sweden. Um, so he's able to kind of con- make sure there's continuity. But the coach, while they do have a say, isn't intrinsic. So losing a coach in that manner doesn't completely disrupt their recruitment, which is important. Do you think it's strange when clubs don't go down that route? Because there are a lot of clubs, even at the top level, that still have their managers as or has it as having the I suppose the final say, the number one say, and they the recruitment is all centered around the manager. I mean, you even look at like Manchester United for ten years, one of the biggest clubs in the world, were very much focused in that manner. Whereas other clubs were more focused around, you know, like you said, it's not they have a say, obviously, but they don't have the be all and end all say. They don't you know, it's not all centered around them. Yeah, I think it's, I do think it still happens a lot and I find it strange. When, but at the very top level, when you're recruiting at that level with that amount of money behind you and the ability to, for example, you're looking for a central midfielder, let's buy four. Mm. And maybe one will come off. Then 
it's different. I mean, the clubs that, that do recruit with a very firm and, and strong model, the likes of Brighton and Brentford, for example, in the Premier League, they can compete above where their finances dictate that they should be able to compete because they're so structured and so intelligent with the way that they, they plan everything and run the recruitment department. I think the clubs at the highest level will always have an element of a scattergun approach more than anything else to the recruitment. And, and it will be, I mean, it's not only manager-led. There are, there will be favoured agents. There will be mm-hmm. favoured agents who will be talking to club presidents or club owners, and, and that completely circumvents the recruitment department. Look at Chelsea. They have recruited some of the very best recruitment professionals from other clubs and I have no idea how their structure is going to work because the people who they've recruited are used to running a department. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden, they've recruited about four at the same level and just given them slightly different titles. And all still feels a little bit haphazard. But then you have, you obviously read the reports that agents are saying we don't even bother going to these people. We just go straight to Todd Bowley and, and present the player to him. And, and then the deal will get done or not done. But I think Arsenal are an interesting case study at the moment because they're a club who could go down that route because they have this the infrastructure, the size, the spending power, and obviously they're chasing the Premier League title. But I think in the winter transfer window, we saw them be very smart and very selective in terms of what they were doing. They, they lost Mudrik. They, they didn't get Caicedo, but then they, they turned around and made intelligent transfers for Trossard and Jorginho which isn't scattergun, it's well thought out, well planned out, and I think that's bearing fruit now. Yeah, it is. I mean, both times have worked out quite well so far. I mean, Jorginho had, had a rocky start, but I thought he's been pretty impressive the last couple of games. Yeah. And in terms of kind of agents getting into the the minds of the heads of the owners, it is interesting. I mean, you look at Wolves with Jorge Mendes, like so many of the Portuguese players they signed were clients of Mendes, and I know at, even under Mourinho at United, um, Mino, the late Mina Riola had quite a say over transfers. He had Lukaku, Pogba, McTarian, all those players. Latin Ibrahimovic, of course, as well. Um, as a scout, uh, just coming back to a, a question I asked you a few minutes ago, when um, I suppose your the manager changes or, or results don't go as well as you would have hoped throughout the season, how difficult is it to kind of change your approach as a scout? Because you will have an ideal, I'd say, an ideal approach, or you've been working in a certain way for quite a while, and then things will change rapidly, and a manager will change. Say if a manager's been there, now I, I'm not saying you've had this example, but just say a manager's been in charge for five years, and then he leaves, a new guy comes in, and there's a whole different approach. Is it really difficult to change that approach? Yeah. Um, one of the hardest things when that happens is that you essentially have to start again from scratch, because when, for a good scout and somebody who does the job, properly in my eyes, when you're watching a player, you're not just it's not a tick box exercise in terms of is this player good, is this player bad, yes or no. You're watching the player within the context of how you'd fit your team. That's why it's so incredibly important that scouts understand their own team. They understand the depth in the squad, the positions of weakness, and they understand the way that the manager plays. So you have to watch your own team. I mean, at the moment at Velez, I have access to all the training sessions, for example, in the, mo- in the afternoons after the morning session. I can log in and watch training to see who's looking sharp, who's, who's hurt, what training's looking like. Um, and it gives you a really good picture of what the team looks like. Now, 
if that all of a sudden changes, then all the context that you put into your previous reports is no longer valid. So you might find yourself having watched a player six months previously, say you watched a centre-half, you liked the centre-half, but you didn't see him play in the way that your team played because the team, the, the theoretical team, we play out from the back, we we want to be in possession in the first line and to draw people in, to break lines and to play like that way. This player that you've watched as centre-half isn't that comfortable in possession, but he is dominant in terms of his duels, in terms of his defending space and everything mm-hmm. else. But because that player couldn't play out from the back, the context of that report means that the player's not good enough for you to recommend for your team. But now the new manager comes in, isn't as worried about playing out from the back because if a new manager's coming in at that point, chances are results aren't going that well. And there is a tendency within football at that point for people to use the term go back to basics. And all of a sudden you're not playing out from the back anymore. You're becoming not more direct, but you're becoming more safety first, if you like, in their approach. So goal kicks will go medium to long range and we'll play out that way and we'll try and escape out the back. And all of a sudden you have to go back and, and watch that player again within that context. And all of a sudden from being a no, it could become a yes. But that's just one example. It can happen any player, really. I mean, you're very, very rarely within scouting evaluating the player. Quite often you're evaluating either the context or the deal. So if you know that a player, you're being offered a player one, Another good one, again, I I don't use Velez because I'm currently employed there. But when I was at Aberdeen, we were tracking Casper Tengstead, who went from Rosenberg to... I just wrote the magazine piece for him there a month ago. (laughs) Um, When we were tracking him, he was at Horsens in the second Mm -hmm. division of Denmark. Um, The information that we had was that if Horsens didn't get promoted, he'd cost 100000 If they did get promoted, he would cost $2 They got promoted. So, of course, our, our interest falls away and then he goes to Rosenberg for a fee that's not that and now he goes on to Benfica. But in that instance, you're very much evaluating the deal because that deal's not viable. Similar to the Mayovsky one that I talked about earlier, it mm-hmm. wasn't viable in the first instance because we were being told there were clubs in and this was the price. That's not viable, but it doesn't make the player a bad player. So you have to always be aware of that kind of information and that kind of context around the player because... If the player's situation changes, the report should still be valid because you're still within the report talking about technical qualities and everything else. And yes, they would fit the mm-hmm. team, no, they would not fit the team. But now all of a sudden the player is available at a price and, and that context around the deal allows you to then progress it forward. Do you feel pressure then? Maybe pressure is a, an incorrect word to use because I know it's your job at the end of the day. But do you feel a certain pressure when maybe... a a certain amount of money spent on a player when he kind of comes into the club and maybe he doesn't adapt very well at the start. And do you start getting a bit... I mean, does it bother you mentally is what I'm trying to ask? Because you've obviously... You've put the work in to scout this player. They've brought him in and he wasn't... He didn't quite work out as well as you'd hoped. How, what, what does that feel like for a scout? Yeah. Uh, is it just part and parcel of the job? Like, is it- Yeah. I mean, there are always going to be players who for whatever reason, when they come into a club, it doesn't work. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't mean that the scout was wrong. It doesn't mean the coaching staff have been wrong. It doesn't mean the players done anything wrong. Sometimes players come into an environment that just doesn't suit them in terms of their personality or a number of other things. Um, so the player cannot perform on that basis. I think if the player came into the club and didn't perform well and it, it was a question of that player's quality, 
I think then we would have questions asked as mm-hmm. a scout. But at the same time, coaching staff will have watched the player as well. So as part of a recruitment process, it, it can't just be about the scouting department, the recruitment department having the final say and, and pushing everything through. There has to be a system of checks and balances. So when it comes closer to the window, when you've got your final targets for a position nailed down, ideally the coaching staff and director of football whatever the title that person is at the club. Ideally, they're all looking at the footage as well and they're all coming forward with opinions and then that opens up a conversation around the player. So there should be checks and balances to make sure that doesn't happen. But I would imagine that as a scout, if you're if you're regularly putting forward players who aren't at the requisite level, that is a problem. Um, not something that I've encountered directly, but I can imagine it would be. Mm-hmm. Lee, you've worked in obviously for Aberdeen now in Scotland and then Velez, of course, a, a Spanish side as well, which is two different footballing countries, two different very or very different footballing cultures, I'd say. The question I want to ask you is when you're scouting a player to come to those clubs in those different environments, how do you assess how they'll do from a certain league going to say a player like you said, going from uh Horsens to the Scottish the Scottish League, of course, with Aberdeen, or, or Horsens to Avelez. I mean, which is the kind of, how do you assess that? Because obviously it would be, they might adapt differently to both teams. They might adapt differently to two different environments. How do you suppose minimise the risk of bringing a player from, like, I mean, you even see it, saw with uh, Independiente del Valle, was it with Moises Caicedo? He managed to come over to Brighton's under-21s, did quite well, 23, sorry, did quite well, and then he makes a step up to the force team. I found the, the jump from that was incredible because I wouldn't imagine a player can go so swiftly from the Ecuadorian Premier League to the English Premier League but like whereas a lot of I mean you see all the time Dutch players will come over and maybe fail in England it's bizarre how do you minimize that risk yeah I think that's a million dollar question in terms of recruitment how do you first how do you value players playing in a certain league based on your league how do you Mm -hmm. get that context um I think the first thing is that you need to understand the the general physical and technical standard of your league when you're working within a league. So you're right, Scottish SBFL and Zagunda Ref in, in Spain probably couldn't be more different in terms mm. of the technical and tactical and physical aspects. In Scotland, you are going to play Rangers and Celtic X amount of times a year and obviously their technical standard is much, much higher than what you will generally find. But you're also going to face a Livingston who have a team full of six foot four, huge, physical, quick players and like to sit back and play in transition. So the key is finding players who are able to fit kind of in that hole in the middle. At Aberdeen, when I was there, we... we we believed that we should be the third team at the very least in Scotland. So we recruited on that basis and we wanted attacking players, forward-thinking players who could unlock defences and make things happen. Um, So there wasn't so much of a physicality to it. But at the same time, when I was there, we recruited Ilber Ramadani, who's an Albanian international central midfielder um, from MTK Budapest. And he is the stereotypical central midfielder who does all the dogged work in the centre and breaks things up. So... You have that balance. What I always found was that using data, you can't so much 
adjust for physical capacity because we simply don't have access to regular physical data for all the leagues that we mm. were covering. So it would be more about you first use the data to identify the players you're performing well. So it becomes about technical event data. So as a player scoring goals, for example, if you're looking for a forward, as a player generating shots, if you're looking for a forward, are they accessing the penalty area and getting touches within the penalty area? What's their goal contributions like? And from that point on, you then go to assess that player. But at that point, you're spending a lot of time thinking about how that will translate to Scotland or to Spain. Um, we do the same thing in Velez. It's still a big part of my job is using data and, and comparing data across different leagues. The markets are just different. So with Aberdeen and different clubs in Scotland, we might be looking at Scandinavia, we're looking at the Netherlands, we're looking at Eastern Europe, Serbia, Hungary, all these different places to find players. Whereas now at Velez, I'm looking at Spain, obviously, but I'm also looking at the USA, I'm looking at South America, I'm looking at Portugal, I'm looking at different leagues all around the world. So what's very important as a scout is that you're able to train your eye so mm -hmm. when you're watching players playing when you might have a price range save I, I always remember someone saying to me when they took a new job that they've been working in the Premier League previously and um, their price range for players for a lower Premier League club was probably 5 to 10 to 15 million and all of a sudden they moved on to a new club and it was 500,000 because they'd taken a, a step up, if you like, but to a smaller team. And they found it difficult in the first instance to be able to adjust what they were looking at and what they were looking for. And that's a process that I went through moving to Velez because I had to watch a lot of Spanish football to understand what that was. And it's very specific for us at Velez because, again, we have a very specific DNA. And it's not what you would call a typically Spanish DNA. So if I'm looking for a winger, we have a very specific... If you think about Sadio Mane and um, Mohamed Salah when Liverpool were winning the league, it's that starting wide but making moves beyond the striker diagonal movements. We're looking for players that play on the wings that will run in behind. But in Spain, everything is very methodical for a large part for most teams and they like to play through the thirds and the wingers will come back towards the ball and look to receive with their back to goal and play one or two touches, the quick passing that we associate with Spanish game. So it's about being able to take that aspect and understand what you're looking for and then apply your own club's DNA to it to find the right players within that. Because there will be players hidden within that methodical Spanish style that can play your style. You just have to be able to find them. It's interesting. I mean, yeah, like well, straight away, actually, when you said that, my first thought was obviously, as everyone probably watched now, the Sunderland Until I Die documentary when your man has Zlatan Ibrahimovic at the bottom, <laughs> about, you know, kind of switching over from a lesser budget. Um, it, it, obviously, you talked about training your eye. Does that include seeing a player who's may, who, who could suit your, I think you alluded to it as well a second ago, but seeing a player that and maybe someone like um, Eze from Crystal Palace or Michael Elise might spring to mind that might be in a bit more of a conservative system that could play in a more Manchester City-esque, Chelsea-style team. You know, because ultimately you will weigh up the style of play of the team that you're, of the player you're scouting. Because if you're looking for a ball-playing defender and you have Craig Dawson, you're not obviously going to look for Craig Dawson to fill that role because he's not playing in a possession-based system, etc. Is it? Is it... Is that the hardest bit as a scout to find that kind of 
to be able to see something that I, I'm trying to phrase this correctly to see something that's not there. So as I said, you can see the raw ability that a Michael O'Leese might have or an Eze, but he's not really playing in a in a team where that will shine as much. But you watch him and go, he could sue X Y Z system, so he could sue a Manchester City, for example. Is yeah. that is that hard to do? Yeah, it, it can be. Um, you can approach it first using data a little bit. So there are pieces on the website total football analysis that I've written previously where I've I've shown how you can use data to identify players who are performing well but within the context of their team in the league. Mm-hmm. So the basic premise of how I do it is that within the, the code that I have for that piece of data for those articles, I calculate how many goals, for example, a team scored. So how many goals and then what their XG was. And that's a very simplistic way of looking at it. And then you take that player's data, or so you have all the teams in the league, you have all their goals, all their XG, all within your model. You then take all the players within that, so take all the attacking players, for example, and then you could calculate the percentage of the team's goals and XG that the individual player is responsible for. Mm -hmm. So you might have, for example, Erling Haaland at Manchester City. Obviously, he's scoring so many goals, but he's getting so many chances. He's playing for a team that are right up there in the table. But then you might look at a Crystal Palace, and yes, they're struggling to get shots away just now, but all of a sudden you'll look at Crystal Palace and see, well, this is just theoretically, I haven't haven't checked the data. But you might look at it and see that Olise is responsible for, I don't know, 15% of Crystal Palace's total XG. Now, doing that, but within leagues that are within our context, so if I do that, the Portugal Portuguese third tier, then all of a sudden I'm seeing teams that are down the bottom of the table that aren't performing that well. I can see which players are responsible for what they are doing well. And then those players go into the scouting workflow. The same thing's true when you're watching a player either live or in video and you are just looking for that moment. You can watch the player in their own context. So you like so you talked about Craig Dawson. Um ball playing centre halves are, are very, very difficult because if you base it purely on data, you're going to find a lot of centre backs who play as a wide centre back in the back mm-hmm. three because they're the ones in those systems who tend to be passing the ball out and getting good numbers, if you like. It's much more difficult to then say if those players can definitely translate to play in a back four. So you have to have opportunities to go and see them. You have to watch the video. And if a player, for example, is playing a back four and you're not sure because the team are really direct, say a centre-back again, you're just looking for that moment within the game where they take the ball on their back foot and they're comfortable in possession and they're being pressed but they don't panic, that alone, that small instance is probably enough to warrant watching the player again. And gradually, as you watch a player more and more, you'll soon get an idea of whether they would be capable of doing what you're going to be asking them to do because it's going to be very specific. Mm -hmm. It's the same way when I talked about the wingers in Spain. There was one that we watched in the winter that we really liked um, nearly got him out of the club, but the club wouldn't release him, his registration in the end, so we didn't get him. But he played for a team who were, as I talked about, very orthodox Spanish and everything was back towards the ball. But what we noticed, and what I noticed when watching the player in the video, is that whenever the centre-backs and the midfielders had the ball, he's pointing all the time behind the defensive line. So he wants to make that run. He wants mm-hmm. to be aggressive and break the line with a run. But the ball never came, so he just ended up coming back towards the ball and linking play and doing that typical Spanish thing. But because we'd seen that, 
that's enough for us to watch more because we already know the player's quick, the player's technical, the player's skillful. If he's willing to make the run that we want him to make, then he'll make the run for us. That's really interesting. That's a, that's a really good point as well. Actually, I quite like that the, the point. And then, yeah, obviously the ball wasn't coming to him and then he'd have to, to drop deep and receive. That's really interesting. In terms of data, you've mentioned data a few times. Um, is it, well, I, I believe it's probably the most effective way to narrow down maybe what you're looking for to kind of, because obviously there's, there's millions of young players or there's millions of players you can look through and it's the best way to narrow it down. But can can things follow through the trap doors quite easily? I mean, can they fall through your grasp in terms of when you're just looking at data first and foremost? Yeah, I think so. I think that you have to look at data, but look at it through different lenses. Mm-hmm. So if you have one very prescribed and very deliberate way of looking at it, so the easiest thing in the world is to go on Scout or Instat and filter by goals scored and you'll see who's scoring goals in any league you want to. But again, you're missing a lot of crucial information within that. Mm-hmm. And obviously the next step in terms of a lens is to view through per 90 stats and then that gives you a little bit more context. But then you look at XG because that gives you a little bit more context and then the difference between XG and goals and that gives you a little bit more context. But being able to use data in different ways and not just one way and not just through one person, I think, because oftentimes when you work within recruitment and you use data, it's becoming more and more prevalent and a lot more people are doing it, which is understandable. Um, But you can't just rely on one person's opinion, even with data. So it's the same way when you're scouting a player, you wouldn't sign a player based on one person watching the player. You At Velez, we have, we'll have at least three different scouts. We'll have me, we'll have Magnus and Jesper all watch the player. And if enough people say, well, if the decision makers, so the scouts can all say yes, and me and Magnus can say no, and then it's a no, but mm-hmm. the, the process is all there. So the different reports are layered up. You need to kind of have the same approach to data-led recruitment, I think. So if different people have got slightly different models, because we don't have one specific model that works all the time, then if different people are applying those models to the same data set and we're getting the same result in terms of the players who are in, I mean, you've also got to take the margin of error. You're not just going to look at data and say, well, that one's at the top, so that's the only one we want. You're going to say, well, if I have 100 players, then here's the data that we're getting. Here's the ranking. We're going to take the top 10, 15, 20 and put all of those into the scouting system to get them all watched on video. Um, I think that minimizes the chances that you will miss something and a player will, will escape through the cracks because you're right. It's the only way to cut down the numbers. I think if you're a, a Liverpool or a Real Madrid or a Manchester City, if you're looking for a striker, you're probably choosing from 1 to 10 that, that would pr- pretty much be it in terms of players who are going to be good enough to play at your level. At Velez, that number is exponentially larger because we have, yes, we probably can't afford the ones who are at the, the top end of the market and mm-hmm. the top middle, but then as it gets down towards where we can afford, the breadth of data and breadth of players that are there are just unreal, so you need to have a way of filtering it. What's the availability of data down that level? I would imagine it's probably a bit more available for a club like Aberdeen where you're, maybe your budget's a bit bigger and you're kind of scouting a, a higher ranking of leagues in Europe or in, in South America, to North America, things like that. But if Velez would, I mean, obviously you're going to be scouting kind of lower down maybe. Would the data be 
less available than a club like Aberdeen, or is it, is it still pretty much kind of very useful? Uh, Aberdeen, there were no issues at all. Um, before I went into the job, they'd actually they'd hired a consultancy firm to basically do a piece of work to say that these are the markets that we think that you should look at in terms of budget and transfers and everything else. So the club already had a fairly good idea of the markets that they wanted looked at, and all of that was available fairly easily. Um, the Velez, it would be a little bit more complicated um, because we've had to transfer a little bit to using Instat data. Instat data is not as good as Wisecape data. Wisecape data is not as good as Opta, StatsBomb. It's just the, the way it goes, but that was the availability. Now, I'm sure quite a few people listening know that Instat is about to be no more. Um, they're on their way out at the end of this month. I didn't know that, and we use Instat. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Chris knows, don't worry. <laughs> wow. Uh, the, the plug is going to be pulled on the website. So basically, Huddle, who own Wisecout, have bought Instat. Um, so they are going to be porting everything over. What we've had meetings, Magnus has had meetings with Huddle, who've said that they will be porting all footage and all data from Instat into Wisecout. So at that point, everything should come together, which is great for me since I took the Velez job and had to rewrite large parts of my code to, to use Instat data, and now they're pulling Instat data. So um, it's good news for us because Wisecout data is richer and more informative, mm. and I would argue more more accurate for me than Instat data is. Yeah. Instat data is a bit patchy, but if Instat data is all that you've got, you find ways to make that work. And as long as you're comparing players, so for example, when I'm working and comparing players at our level, Segunda, Segunda Ref is only covered by Instat in terms of data, so our own players are only covered by Instat. If I'm looking at a player who's playing in a, in a league which has Wisecout data, I can't compare the two that way because the data is collected differently and you get different measures. So I have to use Instat to grab the data from that second player because I can't use the Wisecout data. But once everything ports over to Wisecout, it should be fairly easy for us. I, that genuinely threw me. I didn't know Instat was going to be no more. No one's, I, I, I haven't read that anywhere. That's crazy. Um, that's really interesting. Just as well, we said about data, sorry. The, I mean, would, would Velez collect their own data of their own players? Or is that, as you said, is it done through Instat? Well, I mean, how will that work now with the the kind of the merging, I'll call it. The um the performance analyst team. So there's a performance an- analysis team within Velez, and they'll collect data based. So would on... you use that then, and then compare, or is it hard to compare? Because again, and as well, I know you said Wisecout. Sometimes Wisecout data can be a bit off in terms, of, especially I look at XG maps, and I said this to Scott Martin two weeks ago on the podcast. Even from like my local club, Shelbourne, um, when you look at data. If a shot happened in a certain location, I've seen where it is, and I'm looking at a highlight. When I go onto the XG map, it's way off, and I think, oh, yeah. you know, it's a, it's a okay at the highest level of your Man United, your Man City, Liverpool, it's probably a lot more accurate than it would be going down. Yeah, and I think it's difficult in that sense. But with the data, the performance analysis team capture, we can't use it for recruitment really because it's just a snapshot of a single game. So. For example, they'll have all of our data and it, it'll be captured in a bespoke way based mm. on play model and things like that with different final third entries, penalty entries, things like that. But we won't use it from a recruitment perspective because we don't really have the reliable data then to compare that to <clears throat> within that platform. 
would you tell from say 10 20 years ago a scout nowadays who wants someone who wants to get into scouting that data is a really like understanding data and understanding the context of how to use data is one of the most is one of the best traits a scout can have in the modern game is that fair to say or or, or, or you know is still the eye test still the most important yeah I, I wouldn't say best i think that mm-hmm. the days of the scout who will go to a game and, and stereotypically scribble some notes in the back of a cigarette packet and <laughs> post it into the club. If you've ever read Nowhere Men by Michael Calvin, some of the stories in that are fairly eye-opening in terms of clubs who've had new recruitment personnel take over. Mm. And I can't remember, was it Everton? They got to the club and there was no database. There was no email. They didn't have the phone numbers of the scouts who worked. They, they didn't have anything. And what era would this have been? Was it David That Boyce? would be 90s, I would think. Howard maybe Kendall? Possibly. Later, yeah. late 90s, maybe. Hmm. Because that scout, the person who ran that recruitment department, did everything on the phone. So the scout would phone them on the way back to the game and say, I think we should take this player, not this player. Nothing was written down. Um, and I think that the best of the old school scouts now understand that data has its use. They, they don't necessarily have to be able to use it. There were a couple of scouts, again, going back to when I was at Aberdeen, because it's easier to speak to because it's past tense. Um, there were a couple of scouts that were quite old school. Um, one guy done a lot of work for Celtic in the past, a really good guy. He was a head domestic scout. And by the time, I, I, I think he was maybe a little bit unsure of me to begin with because here I was coming in telling them to sign players from Slovakia and they were used to signing players from League 2 um, it got slightly different but then by the time I left he was very kind when he phoned me and said how much they were going to miss me and how useful everything was mm-hmm. and then there was another guy who was just doing consultancy and I'm absolutely not allowed to mention his name he used to be head of recruitment for a club in, in England and he was unreal I mean, he was the most old school person. We'd be in a meeting, a recruitment meeting, and a player's name would be brought up. And you'd see him just take out his phone and send a text. And within two minutes, he's got the breakdown on the player from somebody who's coached him under 21 international level, somebody who's coached him when he was 20, and a player who used to play for him. And he'll say, oh, I know, we shouldn't go for that one. He likes to go out a little bit too much. Or, yeah, we should definitely look at this one because apparently his physical data and training's through the roof all the time. Cracking kid. And he had that ability just to pull that information. And that's invaluable for Mm. a department. And he didn't use data himself, but he was another one who would turn around in meetings and be asking the right kind of questions about it. You know, what's that actually showing me? And when you explained it, it'd say, yeah, that's fine. But the ones who clung so much to the old school way of doing things, I think, are finding things a little bit more challenging. I think that if you could have an understanding of data, if you want to break into the industry now, and even if it's just as basic as the ability to use Tableau, and to visualize some data and to pull some insights from it, it's a very good starting point. That's the story of that guy was pretty fascinating. Although you won't mention his name, but that is, that's really um, that is really interesting. I, I I want to ask you as well about when you watch a player, how many times should it was actually it's kind of a two part. So let me explain. So how many times you should probably watch a player or like his kind of his clips, and then I know you already said about. Well, part of the question was going to be about getting the second opinion or a third opinion. You already yeah. kind of you mentioned that, but then as well, how how 
what teams do you weigh up? Uh, teams that he's playing. Sorry, I, I should rephrase that. So I mean, like, do you watch him against all top teams in the league, all kind of mid-table, lower team, to get a nice blend, or, or what's the kind of the process there? It can depend. I mean, in terms of how much you watch him, there's no definitive answer. More than once, and as many times as you can, are probably the mm-hmm. closest answers that you'll get. But sometimes, the way that this works, especially when you're within the transfer window, you will literally get a message saying, we need to decide within an hour and a half on this player. And then you're watching and you're just looking as quickly as you can to see what... Is that stressful? I, I panic. Yeah, it can be. Um, depends what time it comes in at. I mean, mm-hmm. I'm very lucky. I've got a very understanding wife. But even she, when I'm still watching football games at half past 11 at night, is a little bit like, come on, what the hell are you doing? Let's, let's knock that on the head now. Um, and it, don't get me wrong, that doesn't happen often. Um, it's not like that's a regular occurrence, but it has happened where we've been told he's about to sign for X club. The agent says we could still get in if we want to, then we need to have an opinion on very quickly. But for the most part, we will watch players minimum five times more probably because when I talk about opinions in a player at Velez what we're doing is when you're asked to do a report you base it on three games Um, that's not the case for most clubs so if I'm doing a report one of the scouts is doing a report then that's six games straight away that we've watched the player in and in terms of what you're looking for there is a when you're first starting out as a scout there is a, a temptation to look for the play at the games in which the players played well mm-hmm. because you want to be positive you want everything to be positive but that doesn't help anybody you have to be able to pick games that are going to be difficult so I'll typically if the, the team say the, the team are bang mid-table then I will watch him play against a top three team I will watch him play against a bottom three team but then I will look for the ground that I know is the most horrible to play football on and I'll watch him away there because if you're looking for a player and he's having to play in a horrible stadium where you know it's going to be pissing rain or you know the wind howls about or you know, I mean, at Velez we play an artificial turf, so we need to know that the player can play on that. I was going to ask you about that. I was going to say about artificial turf. So even like you see in Sweden and things like that, so many of the teams play on artificial turf. How does yeah. that translate over? It's not so bad now as it used to be. I mean, I remember QPR when back in the early 90s used to have the horrible plastic pitch and it, it wasn't Astro, it was plastic and the ball would just bounce off in all sorts of different directions. Um, and everything there, when you're going on and you're watching games on, on those pitches, it's very different to now. Now the surface is, even if it is AstroTurf and it's not real grass, I think you can at least get a, a good opinion of the player from doing that. I think you've got to understand when you're watching a player playing on grass as well that sometimes the grass is too long, sometimes mm-hmm. it's been raining so much that the pitch is borderline unplayable. You don't get that quite so much on Astro and, and the new type of Astro that they get in. But there are still some players who won't want to play for you because you don't play on grass pitches. And there will be others who do because they prefer not to play on grass pitches. It, it swings yeah. and rounds. The last few questions is a couple of questions I want to ask before we wrap up. One of them is, what would your typical day look like then? I mean, how much of your day is spent looking through spreadsheets? I mean, I you've actually shared a spreadsheet in the past with me before, and I was blown away. I think I had 1,060 players listed, I think, all under 21s. It was 
amazing. I love looking through the day. I even looked at um, the League of Ireland just to see the top young talent in the Irish League. It was a fascinating spreadsheet. But how much of your day is spent then looking through those kind of spreadsheets, looking at data, looking through player reports, and then watching clips yourself? Yeah, it can be. I mean, that, that sheet is the emerging talent sheet that we call it yeah. when we, we use Scout data to give mm-hmm. immediate insight on all players under a certain age that have been playing in all the leagues that, that Scout basically provides. And it is great. I mean, I always think that it doesn't matter what club you're working at as a scout, you need to keep your knowledge up to date. So that's knowledge of, as you said, Ireland, which is a league that I watched quite a lot when I was at Aberdeen. Or it could be keeping up with the Premier League or Liga or Bundesliga, which I don't tend to watch all that much anymore because I'm watching other football. And there is a limit to how much your brain can take sometimes. I think that in terms of a typical day, there is no one set typical day. Um, I will read every report that um, the scouts put out. We've just transitioned to a new system. So everyone's getting used to that, where we're using basically a system which prompts to a Canva report, which is something that I know we use a lot, mm-hmm. use a lot to total football analysis. So when I get up in the morning, typically when I have a cup of coffee, I'll read all the reports that have gone on overnight because scouts are burning the midnight oil and they're up late doing the reports. Then when I get to work on myself, at the moment I'm working on our top 10 rankings for each position. So I'll be watching all the players that we have on the long list for those positions and then ranking them 1 to 10 based on what I think. So typically at the moment, my day is pretty much taken out by watching video. Um, there will be phone calls, text conversations with agents. There, there will be, we have twice weekly meetings with myself and Magnus um, sit down and, and have a chat about everything around the club and, and scouting and players and things like that which is helpful in terms of keeping connected so obviously he's still in Spain I'm still in Scotland um, and then there will be times when I am specifically coding, not so much coding anymore, most of the coding is done but plugging the data into the code and then getting the results and having a look at it but you can't update it every week really or you don't get any real insight from it so that might be every few weeks I'm looking at that um, so yeah, there's no there's no one way I think that I work or one typical mm-hmm. day. It tends to just be a whole process. And this sounds like a pretty mundane question, and I know you do get asked quite a lot. But for someone who's starting out and they're listening to this podcast now, I mean the podcast is literally based on how to become a professional scout, how to scout a player. What kind of advice would you give them? Because you actually said to me before the podcast started, and. This isn't something I wasn't aware of before. You can do all the coaching courses you want in the world. It doesn't guarantee you a, a position as a full-time scout or a, even a job in, in football the same way getting a coaching qualification doesn't guarantee you a job as a coach. For someone who wants to get into scouting more and more and wants to learn more, what are the best resources to do that? Is it just simply just watching games of football or is it kind of, I mean, how how what advice would you give someone who's who's just starting out then? I think it's 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 tempting. I mean, I get a lot of messages from people on LinkedIn and Twitter, and, and I never mind. I mean, absolutely, if anybody's listening and wants to reach out and have a conversation around it, that's absolutely fine. Mm-hmm. Um, but people will I'll have people saying to me, "I've done this course. I'm thinking about this course next. What do you think?" I haven't done them. Um, I've been on two scouting courses over the years, and both times I was um, I was asked to go on it basically to give my opinion more than anything else and, and how it was. 
And don't get me wrong, it was interesting enough. And I would never say to somebody, don't go and do a course, because Mm -hmm. if that's what you enjoy doing, and that's part of the way that you think that you can develop professionally, who am I to say don't do it? What I would say is be realistic in your expectations. And I don't know for sure, but I would imagine that some courses are more forward than others in terms of saying, if you complete our courses, you will be X percent more likely to get a job in football. I would say that's not true. Um, For the most part, I would not look at a person's scouting courses before giving them a chance. I'm more likely to look at a body of work that person can produce. And that's always what my, my advice really is. It's share your work, share your thoughts, create a platform. My own platform was just, at first it was just social media. And I never tried to grow my Twitter account. It happened organically, but it grew because I was sharing a lot of things on it in the first instance. And then when I was given the opportunity to set up Total Football Analysis with Chris, that obviously gave me a much, much stronger platform from which I could build. Um, Even if all you're doing is linking a blog to a Twitter account and sharing your opinions and reports on players on a blog, share your your attempts at data visualisation and data analysis on a blog or on Twitter or any kind of platform you like, but share it because you will be amazed by how many people within football have burner accounts on social media. I know of so many that are loads. Well, Pep, Pep said this before. He has Twitter and he doesn't have an actual verified account. So he has a burner account out there somewhere. Yeah. And I know he read my book on uh, on him, on Master in the Premier League. Really? Yeah. I've been told by a couple of people that he's actually read the book. And hopefully I didn't think it was shit. <laughs> um, but the, there are loads of people at different levels within football that are there, that are reading. And I am more likely to be interested in somebody who is out there doing the work. Mm-hmm. There are accounts on Twitter just now that are incredible. Absolutely incredible with the quality of information that they're sharing and, and different depths of leagues that they're going down to to look. It's just unreal. And I would, if I was hiring into a full-time position, I would be more impressed by that than I would be by somebody who's done X amount of courses. Again, not saying don't do them if you enjoy them and you find them interesting. Absolutely do it. It's a passion. You should be doing that. But my best advice is to give yourself a platform, share the work, and get in contact with people at working clubs and ask for their opinion. Um don't always expect an instant reply because sometimes we are busy, but I do try to get back to everybody who reaches out and asks. And I know this sounds kind of abrupt, but even on Twitter, there's a lot of nonsense on there as well. There is, yeah. of course, we all see it. How, how would you, the final question I'll ask you is, how, how would you tell someone to stand out? Because as well, a piece of advice for me, and I don't even work in recruitment or scouting, a lot of people will, you know, do certain things like scouting a centre-forward from Manchester United, etc. I feel like and then they'll maybe send that to a club who have a very small budget. And I think if you, you know, that's not useful to them in any way. I can't remember who said this to me recently, but that somebody said it to me recently anyway. But it's like if you're putting a report into a certain club, kind of stick to what roughly you would imagine their budget could be, something they could genuinely use. What would your piece yeah. of advice be? Absolutely. I think that's a very clever way to do it. Mm-hmm. Um, I'll be honest with you, when I was still working full-time in Total Football Analysis, I ended up going part-time in Total Football Analysis and part-time with Aberdeen when I took the job at Aberdeen. 
for the final couple of months before that happened, um, I was every piece that I wrote for the website was based around players that I knew that Aberdeen could target because I'd already had conversations with them. So I knew that I was putting myself in a position where that was being read and seen and, and shown. You should absolutely do that. But you can also, I mean, a lot of people say find your niche and that that's true to a point. I mean, some people will say find a market and make yourself an expert in that market. But that can pigeonhole you a little bit as well. So you could, for example, become the expert in Scandinavian scouting, which is great. And do that. I love Scandinavian football. It's one of my favourite regions to watch football in, absolutely. But also be aware that that comes with its own set of limitations. What I would say is, like you touched upon, don't just do stuff in the top five leagues. But it can be difficult because that's where the data is readily available from FB Rec. But if you can, then do stuff based on, I don't know, top centre halves the a championship or a League One team may be able to look at from lower down, for example. Straight away, that kind of information is useful to the people who are reading pieces because we don't all work for Manchester United or Liverpool and have that unlimited budget. So yeah, make yourself stand out, but with your quality and the breadth of different pieces that you're able to do as well. If you can do scout reports, do data analysis. If you can do data analysis and you can't do a scout report, make sure you can do a scout report. But also, if you're asked your opinion, don't be afraid to give it. So many people still won't give a yes or no opinion on a player. And If you're doing a report on a player online, don't forget to add the weaknesses. Because there is a clear tendency, and I know we've seen it over the years at Total Football Now. I've done it. I've done it myself in the early days. I've always just yeah. stuck to the strengths. Yeah, you're right. Yeah. And and people will just stick to the good parts because they don't want to touch on the weaknesses. But the weaknesses are important as well. Yeah, because also like there have been a lot of occasions where we've written the scout report and the player has read it and they've shared it or retweeted, it and you don't want to spend half the scout report bashing them and their their talents either. But of course, it is really important to talk about the weakness and as well to stand out. Please, no more Roberto Deserbi build up analysis. Please, I beg you. I, I can't. I can't. I can't look at another one. Lee, where can people find you? Uh, the best place is probably on Twitter. I'm still here at FM Analysis. Um, you can find me LinkedIn and things like that as well. And if you want to drop me a message and ask any questions, and feel free. Thank you so much for coming on today, Lewis. A, a great chat. And to all the listeners at home, I hope you enjoyed it as well. Make sure to tune in on Monday for another episode of the TFA Scouted Podcast, where we will discuss a Scandinavian gem. Also, make sure to rate the podcast too and share it with your followers, friends, and family, as it really helps us to grow. Thank you all for listening, and goodbye for now.